I'm enrolling in Medicare soon, and it had me a little confused. Then I found MyHealthPolicy.com. With MyHealthPolicy.com, I could go online and compare Medicare Advantage plans from some top-rated national insurers, including $0 monthly premium plans. I could learn about plans in my area and talk with a licensed insurance agent if needed. MyHealthPolicy.com has made doing my research a whole lot easier. My choice, my Medicare, myhealthpolicy.com. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Glad to have you with me today. Uh, I want to begin. So, you know, I, I, I should tell you out of the gate, I'm notorious for doing this. Uh, In particular, I am really, really awful about outlining my show and then not actually following the outline of the show. And I'm going to start with what I had said. I think I would maybe talk about an hour three. I'm going to talk about it now. Why? Because it just popped into my head more and I've decided that's what I'm going to (laughs) do. Trust me, I am a professional. Uh, The Charlie Hebdo trial has begun. This is the subject that gets me in trouble with people. The Charlie Hebdo trial has begun. Now, if you can't remember what the Charlie Hebdo trial is or what the Charlie Hebdo situation is, Charlie Hebdo was a um, satire, humor, uh, free speech defense publication in Paris. Uh, It was very famous for taking positions that made people uncomfortable and uh, made people squirm a little bit, if you will. And one of the things they did several years ago, I think it was 2015. Um, you, you would think if I was a if I was a good radio show host, I would have figured this out ahead. Of, yes, look at that, January 7th of 2015. Now I I I know that it was that day because because I was in seminary. Uh, I re- I remember that. I was I was driving I was in class and had to drive down to my station in Atlanta uh, after all that. Uh, so in January of 2015, Islamic terrorists stormed the offices of Charlie Hebdo. And what happened was they had published cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad and they were murdered. The people in the offices were savagely gunned down by the terrorists. Twelve people were killed. Eleven were injured. The gunmen were with al-Qaeda. And there were 19 hostages then taken. Uh, Four Jews among the hostages were murdered as the terrorists fled. And you haven't seen cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad since, have you? You you haven't seen cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad. Now, they, they, they did it out of the gate. They published briefly. But then you haven't seen it since. They they, they claimed they were going to stand up and, and publish more cartoons of, of Muhammad, but they really haven't, and you haven't seen it widespread. 
And I, I want to take a few moments here and acknowledge a few things. Uh, first of all, the terrorists won. The terrorists won. How often do you see pictures of the Prophet Muhammad, cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad, uh, parodies of the Prophet Muhammad? The, the terrorists won. People are too scared to do it. The terrorists won. And then they inspired others. Now, this is what gets me in trouble. I'll try to be as nuanced as possible, but I want to say going into this, I'm not telling you something I don't believe. I'm not telling you something just to provoke you. Cancel culture in the United States of America of the progressive radical left these days is a whole lot like the Islamic terrorists who went into Charlie Hebdo. They are marching in the streets, demanding you either adhere to their ideology, convert, or or you're destroyed. You're not killed. You're just destroyed. Your business is burned down. Your livelihood is wrecked. Uh, I can weave a bunch of stuff into this. Look, look at the woman who exposed Nancy Pelosi as not, defying, as not upholding the rules. Nancy Pelosi went to a salon in San Francisco, got her hair done against the rules. The owner of the salon was outraged that she can't do business for anyone, but Pelosi was able to get one of the hairstylists to fix her hair. She showed the video. Pelosi's doubled down on it, said it was a setup. She's not going to apologize for anything, never mind that she broke the rules. And guess what? Guess what? The business is destroyed now. The woman says she is is going to have to close up shop now. Why is she going to have to close up shop? Because the people are calling people left wing activists who are upset with her for exposing Nancy Pelosi's hypocrisy. They've driven her business into the ground. We see this over and over around the country. Look at Brandon Ike. He was the CEO of the Mozilla Corporation. He had the audacity to give money to support traditional marriage. He's a Mormon in background. No one uh, doubts his credentials to run the Mozilla Foundation, but he gave money to support traditional marriage campaigns around the country, and he had to be driven from his job. You haven't heard from him again. This happens time and time again. This happens to conservatives in Denver, or actually it's uh, Boulder, Colorado. Police are looking for a moped-driving woman who harassed and assaulted a 12-year-old boy. Now, why did she harass the 12-year-old boy? Because he had a Trump sign. There is data out that shows that only progressives in this country right now feel comfortable sharing their views publicly. Why why is that, you think? Why is it that it's only progressives in this country who feel comfortable sharing their views? Because they're the ones who aren't going to be fired. They're the ones who aren't going to have the mob show up. Conservatives tend to have something called a job. And in that thing called a job, there are hours where you work. I can't go to a protest from 9 to noon because I got to sit behind a microphone. Some of you have to go to an office. But if you're a 20-something millennial in your parents' basement with no prospects for a job and, and you read uh, the, the Howard Zinn and the like, uh, you got time to go protest because nobody wants to hire you anyway. 
and you go out to your protests and you demand people be fired because you disagree with their views. The terrorist won with Charlie Hebdo. It is, it's funny to me. Yeah, there is one blue check mark on Twitter saying no one silenced them. They published the cartoon again. Uh, right. Oh, look, PhD, Texas Austin, professor of journalism at Stockholm University. Right. Sure. Sure. Right. Sure. Okay. Show me that I'm responding on Twitter and live stream. Charlie's going to kill me. Show me the cartoon. <laughs> this professor isn't going to want to show me the cartoon. Why? Because the terrorists won. The terrorists won. And they're winning in this country right now, frankly. Uh, in a lot of places, they are. Uh, look at Kenosha, Wisconsin. Look, look at the businesses that are on fire. Look at Portland, Oregon. Look at the businesses that are on fire. Look at how the media can't call them riots. The media has to call them mostly peaceful protests. As you stand in front of burning buildings, remember that audio the other day? The guy is is literally standing in front of the burning building and refers to them as fiery but mostly peaceful. What you're seeing behind me is one of multiple locations that have been burning in Kenosha, Wisconsin over the course of the night. A second night since Jacob Blake was seen shot in the back seven times by a police officer. And what you are seeing now, these images came and come in stark contrast to what we saw over the course of the daytime hours in Kenosha and into the early evening, which were largely peaceful demonstrations in the face of law enforcement. It wasn't until night fell that things began to get a little bit more contentious. Things were thrown back and forth. Police started using some of those crowd dispersal tactics like tear gas, even playing uh, very loud sounds to push them out. And then what you are seeing, the common theme that ties all of this together is an expression of anger and frustration over what people feel like has become an all too familiar story playing out in places from across the country, not just here in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Mostly peaceful protests. It's always at night when things turn violent anyway. You know, you got Van Jones on CNN. He's under attack from the left for saying there needs to be a moratorium on, on the nighttime Black Lives Matters protests because it's helping Trump. And the left is mad at him for telling people to cut it out. They want to cancel Van Jones for saying maybe you shouldn't burn people, burn businesses down. And then, you know, there's something else here. Uh, there's something in the water. There is some psychosis circulating where a, a, a bad guy is taken out by police officers and he happens to be black, and we are to immediately presume these days that it was racism. Not, not that the guy was a bad guy, not, not that there was a crime happening, not that the police could have been in danger, but nope, you are supposed to immediately presume racism, and if you do not presume racism out of the gate, you yourselves are racist. There's a psychosis in the water. I, 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 people have lost their minds. You're supposed to presume everything is racist until proven otherwise. And if you can't prove it, it is presumed racism. It is like the Salem witch trials. It is like Monty Python. Uh, drown the If the witch drowns, then she wasn't a witch. If she floats, she was a witch, and you must drown her 
or burn her at the stake. There's no, this is, it's, it's madness. But also, it's violence. And also, the terrorists did win. Not only did the terrorists win, but they emboldened other people to behave in terroristic ways. Now, progressive activists in this country, thank God, are not going in and, and shooting people up and killing people and beheading people. They're not. They're just destroying people's lives. They're wrecking people's careers. They're making people so radioactive, instead of killing them, they're canceling them. Western society still has some standards left. But, you know, the 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 demarcation point between the Charlie Hebdo terrorists and these progressive cancel culture activists is death. One wants to kill you. The other just destroy your life, your livelihood, make you want to kill yourself, drive you from public. But it's all about censoring you. It's all about making you scared. It's all about intimidating you. It's the same thing. The tactics are slightly different, death versus destruction. But that's where we are. Let, let's let's not make uh, let's not dance around it. Cancel culture and the Charlie Hebdo terrorists are very much alike, except in the outcome of death or destruction. One is just destruction. And the only way to fight back, and, and this is this is really really important, the only way to fight back is to stand up. The only way to fight back is to speak up. That doesn't mean you've got to be a jerk. It doesn't mean you have to be a brain biblical donkey. It just means hold fast to what you think is true and right and not be afraid to say it. Now, some people do have insane views, but most people don't. They just have views that don't conform to the left. For example, here we go. I, I'm going to posit to you that most police officers, the overwhelming majority of police officers, 98 to 99% of police officers are good people. And not only are they good people, they're not racist. And I'm going to suggest to you that overwhelmingly, when the police do harm to someone, that someone probably was a bad guy. And that it wasn't racism. That doesn't deny that there is racism. That doesn't deny that there are bad things. That doesn't deny that there are people who do things they shouldn't do, including police officers. But the default presumption is not racism. The default presumption is not that the police are the bad guys and the bad guy is the good guy. But to say that these days puts you in a precarious position. You might just get canceled for saying it. It's like drawing a cartoon of Muhammad. The only difference is whether your life is ruined or your life is taken. It's still cancel culture, and it's still something you got to stand up to. The trial of people who collaborated with the Charlie Hebdo terrorists has begun in Paris, and what they're finding is that it was much more coordinated with much more support for the terrorists than what the French thought originally. Many people collaborated. There are a whole lot of collaborators in this country with the left, in part because they're scared, but in part because they believe it. But you know what? The good news, the good news is this. The overwhelming majority of Americans on the left, the right, and the center actually oppose cancel culture and think these people are nuts. The question is, what are you going to do about it? Hello there. It is Eric Erickson. The phone number, if you would like to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC. 
877-973-7425. Okay, so (laughs) so the the professor... The, the the professor is mad at me uh, for pointing out on social media that the Charlie Hebdo terrorists did win. They silenced people. I, I they said no. They reran the cartoons after all that happened. I said so. Show me the cartoons. The professor will not now show me the cartoons and has deleted the tweet. <laughs> See, the terrorists won. The terrorists won. I mean, I, I myself, I, I got a, I got a family. It, 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 do I want to be putting up cartoons of Muhammad uh, after what the crazies did? Do you? I mean, we might as well acknowledge that that the terrorists did win in this regard, and and it inspires cancel culture. It is, it did not cause cancel culture, but it certainly inspires. Listen, if you can destroy someone's livelihood, and this gets back to the thing I've been talking about all week. The percentage of people in this country who do not feel safe, safe, the people in this country who do not feel safe saying they're supporting Donald Trump. Now, I have to tell you, and we'll get into this more later, there, there, there are a number of polls that have come out uh, that show in the swing states the president's gotten some benefit from both conventions. and the national polls, the media is almost celebratory that the national polls don't show it. I will also tell you that the trend lines out there uh, do seem to be working for the president, but I question whether they're enough. But even so, you've got a number of people in this country who don't feel comfortable saying they're supporting the president of the United States. Why? Because they're afraid the mob will come for them. Almost every week now, there are articles in the media about people admitting their contempt for Trump voters. There's one woman, uh, she's got an Instagram account. She's an artist of some kind, and she she has a Twitter account that is separate, and she finally came out and admitted that uh, she's she's done playing nice on her artist Instagram account when she sees people following her and she looks at their profiles and finds out that they support Trump. She blocks them. Doesn't want anything to do with them. The, it, people who don't want anything to do with their fellow Americans because of their political views. But you know what? Here, here's the dirty little secret. There are some people on the right who are the same way. Some of you don't want anything to do with someone on the left. It's a problem on all sides, but it really is more a phenomenon. There are certainly people on the right who would love to silence those on the left. There are certainly those. Listen, when I said I wouldn't support the president in 2016, I had three people show up in my house to threaten me. I, I know what it is. And, you know, I'm the jerk personality that just doubles down when you do something like that. But most people aren't. The left, however, the left is coming for everybody these days. And it does make you wonder about the polling. My sense from talking to so many pollsters is that they're able to to work around it to a degree by making some presumptions that you can make as well based on percentages of people who are comfortable talking and not talking. But it is still staggering to me how many people in this country don't feel comfortable saying that they would support the president. And it's staggering to me as well to watch the media outlets from CNN to the the other major outlets. They're they're too scared to tell you what's actually going on in some of these cities. They, They can't do it. 
it would be bad for them if they did. Cancel culture is a thing. We, we saw it with Charlie Hebdo. We're seeing it with the left. Now, some people on the right want to cancel NPR. I think we need to get rid of NPR's government subsidies. I'm not really in favor of canceling them. But when we come back, pro-looting commentary at NPR. Uh, I have looked into it, y'all. This is insanity. And it's gotten mainstream attention with NPR. People on the right are mad. You really shouldn't be mad about this. Uh, I want to tell you why when we come back. Some of the most bizarre stuff you're going to hear from the left. I confess to being somewhat discombobulated this morning in large part because I am I'm not in my home studio. I'm in the the actual studio uh, and it's just I, I I I have like three monitors at home and I can spread everything out and now here I am with my laptop and like where where where's the stuff that I'm looking for? I have no idea. Okay. Now I found what I'm looking for. I had to find the name Vicky Osterweil. Vicki Osterweil is the author of a book, In Defense of Looting, A Riotous History of Uncivil Action. I suppose I should give you the call-in number first, 877-973-7425. I'm a bad host. That's okay. One of those days. Now, Osterweil has written A Defense of Looting. Now, I, I got to tell you, um, it, it, let me just read you some quotes from the book. Looting is a powerful tool to bring about real lasting change in society. In fact, the so-called United States of America was founded in, get ready for, for uh, critical theory word salad. It's word salad time. <clears throat> The so-called United States of America was founded in cis-heteropatriarchal racial capitalist violence. Let me say that again. Cis-heteropatriarchal racial capitalist violence. Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, even though the sound of it is actually quite atrocious. Cis-heteropatriarchal racial capitalist violence. <laughs> Yes, this is that's her word. Cis heteropatriarchal racial capitalist. That that's a thing. That's like an a that's like an amalgamation of I, I, of insanity. Cis heteropatriarchal racial capitalist violence. That's how the so called you. Momentary pause. Let's work our ways back, kids. Let's do the Socratic method. The so-called United States was founded in cis-heteropatriarchal racial capitalist violence. What existed before that? Colonies. And where did the colonies come from? Cis-heteropatriarchal racial capitalist violence. And what was there before the colonies? Utopia. And what did that utopia look like? People roaming the wilds of America with bows and arrows. And where did those people come from? They wandered. And what do those people do? They wandered. And what evidence do we have that they were there? Mud huts and Indian mounds? And what did we get from the cis-heteropatriarchal racial capitalist violence? Buildings, ships, trade, commerce, industry, jobs. 
Would you rather be a, an American Indian wandering the wilds of America with a bow and arrow or living in your air-conditioned mom's basement? Which would you prefer? But she believes ownership of things is innately structurally white supremacist. This gets back to my discussion of critical theory yesterday. You lump people into categories and, and you can never get out of those categories. Now, here's the greatest part of this book. The greatest part of her book, let, let me find it. Um, yes, here we go. Here we go. I'm going to read from you someone who actually read the book. Um, this is this is Graham Wood writing in The Atlantic. I am not the audience for this book. I have a job, and I'm therefore invest, invested in building a system where you get paid for your work and pay others for theirs. And then everyone pays taxes to make sure that if these arrangements don't work out, you can still have a dignified life. Easily, my favorite line in the book was written not by the author, but by her publisher. Right under the copyright notice, it reads, quote, The scanning, uploading, and distribution of this book without permission is a theft of the author's intellectual property. What? Isn't that, uh, hang on a second, let's get back to that word, uh, cis-heteropatriarchal racial capitalist privilege? Is it, isn't that what this is? I mean, if you're not allowed to scan this woman's book, if you're not allowed to do it. Now, okay, so this all comes to a head because Code Switch, which is an NPR segment, Race in Your Face, they interviewed the woman. I have to use my NPR voice now. You'll have to excuse me. It, it, it's, it's a struggle, but someone has to do it for you. <clears throat> In the past months of demonstrations for black lives, there has been a lot of condemnation of looting. Whether it was New York Governor Andrew Cuomo saying that stealing purses and sneakers from high-end stores in Manhattan was inexcusable, or St. Paul, Minnesota Mayor Melvin Carter saying looters were destroying our community, police officers, government officials, and pundits alike have denounced the property violence and demanded an end to the riots. And just last week, rioters were burned buildings and looted stores in Kenosha, Wisconsin, following the police shooting of Jacob Blake, to which Senator Ron Johnson reported. Republican of Wisconsin has said, peaceful protesting is a constitutionally protected form of free speech. Rioting is not. Writer Vicki Osterweil's book, In Defense of Looting, came out Tuesday. Osterweil is a self-described writer, editor, and agitator who has written about and participated in protests for years. And her book arrives as the continued protests have emerged as a bitter dividing point in the presidential race. When she finished it back in April, she wrote that a new energy of resistance is building across the country. Now, as protests and riots continue to grip cities, she staked out a provocative position that looting is a powerful tool to bring about real, lasting change in society. The rioters who smash windows and take items from stores, she claims, are engaged in a powerful tactic that questions the justice of law and order and the distribution of property and wealth in an unequal society. I spoke with Osterweil, and our conversation has been edited and condensed for clarity. I, I don't, you know, NPR just has that voice. 
It's like Jeffrey Dahmer as as he's describing the the butchering of his victims. It, it it's it's just very methodical and calming, and the the soothing voice of of, of the NPR people as they go. I I, I don't. I, it's it's an acquired skill set. I'm pretty sure I couldn't do that for long. My jaw hurts talking like that. But nonetheless, the, so NPR has interviewed Osterwild. And, and people on the right are upset. Now, I am philosophically opposed to giving NPR money. You know, so I'm a talk radio show host in a free market system. If you don't like me, you can change the channel. And if you, enough people change the channel, well, then the advertising revenue goes down and then I get canceled. When the ratings go down, you get canceled. And that's the way it works. That That's, that's the free market voting. But NPR never gets canceled because NPR gets your taxpayer subsidy. And that is, in my mind, at this point, not a fair system. With the, the plethora of, of outlets out there for you to listen to, you can go to satellite radio. You can listen to terrestrial radio. But NPR gets your money. And I'm philosophically opposed to the government funding, particularly now that they've divested themselves of Sesame Street and given it to HBO. You're not going to kill Big Bird by getting rid of NPR. In PBS, but nonetheless, so they they've they've interviewed Osterwild, and people on the right are like, oh, "You should cancel NPR." No, NPR has done us a service. NPR has done us a service by allowing the woman who wrote the book in defense of looting to try to defend herself, and she can't defend herself because she's bat poop crazy. Anyone who can create the world word salad of cis heteropatriarchal racial violence is insane. And we shouldn't waste our time with this woman, except NPR did. And people are going out and buying her book. I want to read you an excerpt of her book. A friend of mine highlighted this for me. This is just nutty. Let me read for you this, this section of her book. These meant one angle of the riots by the way she says she's an editor and she can't write these meant one angle of the riots was a racial battle between black people and the Korean immigrants who had come to own and manage much of the businesses in South Central rioters systematically attacked Korean businesses and a television crew happened to be present for a gunfight between Korean store owners and black rioters. But much as Watts was sometimes described as an anti-Semitic uprising because Jewish businesses were frequently targeted for destruction, actual anti-Korean sentiment was contingent and largely beside the point. Instead, just as Jews were in 1965, Koreans in 1992 were, quote, on the front lines of capital of confrontation between capital and the residents of central L.A. They are the face of capital for the communities. You got that? You can target the Jewish and Korean businesses of south central L.A. for rioting and looting because they're capitalists. They are the face of capitalism and go after the capitalists. I, did this woman give her book away for free? No, she did not. We should be wanting to cancel NPR. We should be thanking them for exposing us to this woman to know that these views are out there. And if this is the best defensive looting you have, it, it's nuts. I mean, it just just let, let's go back to the Socratic method here for just a moment, please. Just a moment. So you've destroyed all of the businesses. Now what? Will people live free and happy? How do people leave, live free and happy when they can't go to the grocery store to buy their toilet paper? 
Well, they go get toilet paper. Well, where does the toilet paper come from? From the community. Where in the community does the toilet paper come from? From the business. What business? You've just burned down the business. But new businesses of self-help utopia will arise from the ashes. Really? Who's going to pay for them? Well, no one will pay for them. Really? Who's going to build them? The community will build them. Well, who in the community will build them? The community. How will they build them? How will they get the resources? Well, they will go out and they will build mines and factories and they will make all of the stuff for the building. Really? Who with skill is going to want to do that for free? See, none of it makes sense. It's it's like the critical theory nonsense. So everyone who's in a position of power is bad, and the people who aren't in a position of power are the ones we must listen to. We must put them in a position of power. Now, when they're in a position of power, aren't they now bad? Well, no. Well, why? Because you said people in positions of power are bad. Well, it was those people in positions of power, not these people in positions of power. Well, how come these people won't be affected by power in the way the other people will be affected? It None of it makes any sense. All you got to do is ask basic questions. The rioting, the looting, none of it makes sense. And it's it's good that we be exposed to the ideas of the bat poop crazy set who who are are enforcing the thinking behind all of the looters and the violence and the antifa set because none of them make sense. You know, I I just I want to bring you back to 1622. Now you know the 1619 project from the New York Times, which we now know based on the the originator, the author of it, that it really wasn't a history; it was to be thought provoking. One of the things that they leave out for the, they call it the 1619 project is because that's when the first slaves set foot in, on the North American continent. And therefore, the whole of the United States is polluted by slavery. They always left out 1622. They always left out the pilgrims. You know, the pilgrims didn't have a slave enter their territory until the late 1820s. You know what happened before the slaves got there? Well, they started the utopian colony that these these people want. They showed up in Plymouth, and they started building their colony. And you know what happened? The people starved to death. Do you know why? Because they believed in the communitarianism that this woman believes in, who, who's in favor of rioting. They just say, you know, everyone's going to pull together and everybody's going to grow their own cord and they're going to make their own food and they're going to build each other's houses and they're going to live in a commune and it's going to be grand and glorious. And you know what? The Indians had to come bail them out because they were starving to death. And then what happened? They came up with this crazy idea. Just, just bear with me here. What is it? Uh, John Winthrop. He, he he wrote about this in the the 1630s. He was writing about the rise of the of the uh, Plymouth Plantation, and they had this crazy. I mean, it was a crazy idea because they were starving to death because no one was pitching in and helping for for the community. They decided, hey, wait a second, wait a second. What if we gave each person a plot of land and that became their land and their job was to grow food on it to feed their family? And then wait, 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 wait. Let's 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 add something to it. If they had extra, if they, they had extra wheat, they had extra corn. 
They had extra eggs. They had extra chicken. We will allow them to sell it to the people who screwed up their own plot of land. And they could have some financial incentive to do really good work. And and do you know what happened? I, I know this is hard to believe. I, I, I realize this will hurt your head because it, it's cis-heteropatriarchal racial violence. And, and it's just the bizarre thing is people started doing it. And suddenly they went from mass starvation needing an Indian bailout to having bounty and extra and excess and trade. And they started making money. And it developed something today we call the Puritan work ethic. <gasps> Cisheteropatriarchal violence. That's what it is. You, you, you have your own plot of land. You grow what you need to sustain your family and you sell the excess. You sell your talents, your trade, your service, your excess food. You make some money. You have incentive to keep doing it. That's cisheteroracial violence. Oh, I forgot the patriarchal. Sorry, in the word salad, cis-heteropatriarchal viol- racial violence. That's what that is. Supporting your own family and then using the excess of your talents and labor to support other people. That's apparently bad to these people. But you know what? Had they not done it, Osterwild wouldn't be here to be able to write a book in support of looting. Why? Because all the colonists would have starved to death. And you'd still have a bunch of Indians running around the countryside with their bows and arrows. No, I've been there many over the years. I've been there many times. I appreciate I appreciate the question. And let me just say this. I take responsibility for trusting uh, the word of a neighborhood salon that I've been to over the years many times. And that um, when they said, well, we're able to accommodate people one person at a time and that we can set up that time. I trusted that. As it turns out, it was a setup. So I take responsibility for falling for a setup. And that's all I'm going to say on that. Well, I don't. I think that they owe, uh, that this salon owes me an apology for setting up. But I will say this in fairness to him and in sympathetic to him. We have to get our country moving again. And I will not let this subject take away from the fact that we have 180,000 plus people who have died from this virus. Uh, Since we passed the bill, more than half of those people have died since we passed uh, the legislation. 4.6 million, I know, 4.6 million have become infected since we passed the legislation. And uh, there are answers. There are scientific answers for this. Um. So Nancy Pelosi goes into a hair salon at a time in San Francisco you're not allowed to get your hair done. And she says that the the shop owner assured her they could do one at a time and get her in. But that's not what the rules said. And she did this, and she got caught. And and by the way, um, the the shop owner – is different from the woman who cut her hair. She went to the woman who cut her hair usually, who was fine with it. The the shop owner was enraged that they're, they've shut down. They're not allowed to have business. And here comes Nancy Pelosi, who wants to have business, who, who wants to get her hair done, even though the rules say no. And, and Nancy Pelosi's like a, 80 years old. She shouldn't be out in public doing that sort of stuff anyway. And And – I bring this up because this this is such Animal Farm-like stuff. 
They don't want you to be able to do this stuff, but they themselves want to do it. They don't want you to be able to go out and get your hair done. In, at least in Georgia, we can. I'm getting my hair cut this afternoon. But in places like California, you know that they've basically gone back on lockdown. And here's the other thing. The, the media here at least has questioned Pelosi, but no one in the media is pushing back on her that the store owner said they could do one at a time. Nancy Pelosi is supposed to know the rules. Ignorance of the law is no defense. If you get pulled over by the police for doing something wrong and you had no idea, like, for example, I got pulled over a while back. Uh, I was doing 45 and a 35. There were no signs on the road at all anywhere. And the police officer pulled me over. And now, thankfully, the police officer acknowledged there actually were no speed limit signs. I was on a uh, on a road making. There were no speed limit signs on the road. It was designated 35, but I, it looked like it'd be 45. Everybody else was going 45. I've always gone 45 on that road. Well, the police officer pulls me over. He says, actually, it's 35. He didn't give me, he gave me a warning, didn't give me a ticket for it. And said he was he was just out there pulling people over to tell them that there were no signs, but it was it was 35. And that's great. God bless him. Uh, I appreciated it. But Nancy Pelosi is the Speaker of the United States House of Representatives, and she doesn't know what the law is in San Francisco. And I realize that it's a San Francisco law, but she's the Speaker of the House of Representatives. And she's going to claim that it was a setup. She's going to claim ignorance of the law. She's going to claim that the law is something other than it was. You and I couldn't get away with that. And, and that's what we see time and time again. These, these elitist people on the left, they want to operate in a way that you and I aren't allowed to operate. They want to get away with things you and I aren't allowed to get away with. And that's why so many people are mad. When we come back, Bill Barr, man, did you hear about his interview with Wolf Blitzer? I got some audio to play you. Why, hello there. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, The Eric Erickson Show. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, E-R-I-C-K. That translates to 877-973-7425. You're more than welcome to call in if you want. You can also get me on social media, E.W. Erickson, pretty much everywhere except Snapchat and TikTok. I'm a grown man. I don't need to be on those platforms. You don't either. Doesn't matter what your age is. A University of Southern California professor is having to take a short-term pause and stop teaching. Why? Because he's a communications professor at the University of California's Marshall School of Business. He's on break because Greg Patton was discussing Chinese communication techniques. He's an expert in communication, interpersonal, and leadership effectiveness, and he was talking about filler words like ah uh, and um and that that you don't necessarily need, and literally, and like, and he was comparing it to how the Chinese have similar things, and the specific class was on intercommunication with the Chinese and the use of filler words, and one of the Chinese filler words that the Chinese use a lot is that, and it depends on which part of China you're in, how you pronounce it. In southern China, it's pronounced neg, N-A-G-E. In northern China, it's pronounced N-I-G. And some people add an affectation to the end of it. It all depends on where you are in China. 
but they all use it. Well, people saw the video and assumed he was using the racial slur, the the the, the um a variant of the N-word. He was not. He was talking in Chinese. He was talking about the Chinese filler words. He was comparing them how Americans have filler words like, um, you know, they have filler words. But now he's been driven out of teaching because he used a Chinese word that sounded like a variant of the N-word. And the University of Southern California is now offering, quote, supportive measures to any student, faculty, or staff member who requests assistance because USC is committed to building a culture of respect and dignity where all members of our community can feel safe, supported, and can thrive. Unless they're speaking Chinese! (laughs) Y'all, we have lost our minds as a society. Now... I'm moving on from there to William Barr, the attorney general, because I spent all day yesterday talking about voting and vote fraud and how it's highly improbable that an election can be stolen from vote fraud. And then Bill Barr goes on CNN and and says what everybody says I'm wrong about. And I want to play the audio here. I want to put it in proper context to discuss. This is a, you know, sort of cheap talk to get around the fundamental problem which is the bipartisan commission chaired by Jimmy Carter and James Baker said back in 2009 that mail-in voting is fraught with the risk of fraud and coercion. But since then, and, there have and been until a lot this of admin- no, well, sorry, that have improved it. Let me talk. Yeah, please. Uh, and since, this, since that time, there have been, in the newspapers, in networks, academic studies saying it is open to fraud and coercion. The only time the narrative changed is after this administration came in. But elections that have been held with mail have found substantial fraud and coercion. For example, we indicted someone in Texas, 1,700 ballots collected from people who could vote. He made them out and voted for the person he wanted to. Okay, because that kind of thing happens with mail-in ballots, and everyone knows that. But there are individuals, uh, cases, but as far as widespread fraud... We haven't seen that since... uh, Well, we we haven't had the kind of widespread use of mail-in ballots that's being proposed. We've had absentee ballots from people who request them from a specific address. Now what we're talking about is mailing them to everyone on the voter list when everyone knows those voter lists are inaccurate. People who should get them don't get them, which is what has been one of the major complaints in states that have tried this in in municipal elections. And... uh, People who get them are not the right people. They're people who have replaced the the previous occupant, and they can make them out. And sometimes multiple ballots come to the same address with a whole generation, several generations of. So I want to address this for a little bit because he's right. Uh, There are instances of vote fraud around the country, Uh, but also it is he's the attorney general. And we found this stuff. And they've prosecuted these people because they were able to find them. And if the election is held in November, he's going to be the attorney general until January. And if there's widespread vote fraud, they'll be able to get a very good hint of it right after the election because there will be audits in the certification process. 
it is absolutely true, and I, I don't, you know, I, it even pains me to have to do this because I'm not actually an advocate of mail-in voting. I don't like it. I think every single person should have to vote on election day, and and we should flat out bar absentee voting. No one should be allowed to vote absentee. You got to show up on election day at the polling place. The only exceptions that I think are reasonable are are people who live overseas, uh, the military overseas, and possibly the infirmed who can't get out of their hospital bed or nursing home to go. But otherwise, everyone should have to go on election day and vote. Uh, spend money, expand the polling precincts, and and let people go vote. And he's right. There are instances of fraud in elections around the country in mail-in ballots. And he's right uh, that there are a lot of states who are rushing forward with mail-in balloting in ways they should not, and that's wrong. But we, most states do know how to conduct absentee ballot elections. People do know how to conduct absentee ballots. People do know how to uh, do an election with absentee ballots. People do know how to process them. People do know how to check the signatures. People do know how to watch to make sure there's no vote fraud. And I, I don't think we need to con- conflict the two because, for example, in Florida, where the president and the attorney general have said Florida has a good procedure, it's you can request your ballot by absentee and you can vote by absentee. And I think that's good. I do have a philosophical objection with, for example, Nevada suddenly wanting to mail everybody in Nevada a ballot, not an absentee ballot request. They want to mail people a ballot. They want to change the rules in the middle of the game. And we should all be philosophically opposed to changing the election rules in the middle of the game. And it is interesting to me that Democrats are not right now. Democrats are not in, in – they've got no problem in changing the rules in the middle of the game. The attorney general is right. The attorney general is right that there are instances of fraud. I was an elections lawyer. I defended elections. I fought elections. I've seen instances of vote fraud. I think that the media plays down instances of vote fraud. But I also think that just as the media plays up cases of voter suppression, plays down cases of of voter fraud because they are of the left, and Republicans play up cases of vote fraud and play down cases of voter suppression, it happens. uh, Both of them happen. Vote fraud and vote suppression happens. It just doesn't happen at scale. Now, he's right. We've never conducted a, a presidential election by mail. But when you're at that level, when you're dealing with that many ballots, it's going to be really freaking hard for somebody to steal an election through vote fraud because you've got to know which states are in play. Florida is an obvious one. Florida is definitely in play. In fact, I would venture to say if the president of the United States loses Florida, he's not going to be able to win the election. But Broward County, Florida is the most populous county in Florida, cast the most vote in every presidential election in Florida. And Hillary Clinton won it with 200,000 votes. How are you going to, at scale, manufacture that many votes in Broward County? Because if you're casting votes for Republicans who show up at the polls or cast their absentee ballots, uh, they're going to find out about it, and they're going to raise flags, so you got to spread it through the state. Well, if, if when you look at the, the vote totals in Florida, you're going to have to manufacture several hundred thousand additional votes in Florida, and it's gonna nobody can keep a secret, and you're going to be casting votes for people who have show up at the polls and vote and say, wait a second, I haven't cast an absentee ballot. What's going on? There are so many trigger points for auditing the trail, and Republicans and Democrats alike get to audit the trail. You can't obstruct them from auditing the trail of votes cast. You're gonna. It, it's it's just really hard to do it at scale in a municipal election. It's pretty easy, actually. In a statewide election, it's pretty hard. It is really hard in a statewide election to steal an election. 
in a state house race, in a state senate race, maybe so. But in a presidential race, it's going to be really hard. You got the electoral college, you got 50 states, you've got 50 election procedures, you've got 50 absentee balloting processes. It's just going to be hard. Now, he went on to talk a little bit more uh, about systemic racism and I, and um, about China, and I want to get to some of those. But I also, before I get to any of that stuff, I want to play this. I thought it was very telling that they keep raising the question about whether Bill Barr is feeling pressure from the president. Is it appropriate for the president of the United States to be putting pressure on you in, in the way he clearly did? I don't feel any pressure from that. You don't think he's trying to pressure you into going forward with the indictments and criminal charges and stuff like that? No, that's, you know, when we talk in private, he doesn't talk like that, so. He doesn't talk like that to you privately, but publicly he is. uh, But is it appropriate for a president of the United States to be speaking like that publicly about the What what do you think is inappropriate about what he said? Well, let me play another clip. This is what he said three weeks ago or or so, uh, elaborating. Listen to this. I hope they're not going to be politically correct, and I hope they do what? Because the fact is this was President Obama knew everything. Uh, Vice President Biden, as dumb as he may be, he knew everything, and everybody else knew everything. They spied on my campaign, which is treason. They spied both before and after I won. Bill Barr can go down as the greatest attorney general in the history of our country, or he can go down as just an average guy. It depends on what's going to happen. I see you smiling, but... Uh, well, I, I sort of responded to that by saying that, uh, you know, if, if I was really concerned about being politically correct, I wouldn't have joined the administration. And also, I held a press conference and said that neither President Obama or Vice President Biden were under investigation. But is so it that's appropriate? How I, that's how I respond. But is it appropriate? And you've worked for another president, uh, President George H. W. Bush. Is it appropriate for a president to be urging you to launch criminal investigations against his political opponents? Well, we, he has. I didn't take that as launching a, a criminal investigation. We're, we're reviewing the RussiaGate thing, and I think he's interested in the results of it. But I didn't think it was appropriate for either uh, Vice President Biden or uh, Camilla Harris to call for the charging of a police officer before that matter is reviewed and all the facts are in. Oh, y'all, I, I continue to think that Bill Barr is the smartest man in the administration and the way he drives people insane. He just he doesn't take it from anybody. He, he doesn't get whipped up. He stays level headed the whole time. And this conversation with Wolf, I, I just thought was great. The other thing, and I don't have the audio for this one. You, you can only play so much from one interview before they start getting mad at you for taking their stuff. But he also, you know, the president in North Carolina encouraged people to go vote twice in North Carolina to see if the system worked. And everybody's having a complete meltdown over this. You know, you can vote twice in some states. You can vote twice in Georgia. (gasps) Let me explain. Same thing in North Carolina. See if the system works. You request an absentee ballot in Georgia. You vote your absentee ballot. And you mail your absentee ballot back to the Board of Elections. Well, then you decide on Election Day, you know what? I, I, I I, I don't think I really want my ballot to count. I, I, I've decided I hate that SOB. I'm going to go vote against him, whoever that may be. So you show up on election day and say, look, I cast an absentee ballot and, and I want to, I want to vote. I want that destroyed. Well, you vote a provisional ballot. You, you don't actually vote on the machine. You vote a provisional ballot. And if your absentee ballot has been processed, well, you're out of luck, buddy. 
if if they can get rid of your absentee ballot and cast your provisional ballot, okay. But that also proves the system works because they track it. Do you know in Georgia there's actually a website? Uh, the Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, has a website set up where if you request an absentee ballot, you can see when the request was received, when your ballot was mailed out, when they received your ballot back from you, and when your ballot was counted or rejected, and if it was rejected, why? You can track all of that online. They make it very easy to do. Mail-in balloting is different. Georgia shouldn't rush into mail-in balloting. I do think we should all be opposed to changing the rules of the game in the middle of an election. There are states like Oregon that only vote by mail-in balloting, and they've been set up for a while to do it, and there isn't a history of rampant vote fraud in Oregon. But some states want to change it in the middle of the game, and we should all – I mean, this is what election contests in the in the past have been argued over. This is part of Bush versus Gore. You do not change the rules. That was part of with Bush versus Gore, Bush versus Gore in 2000. They wanted to change the standards by which ballots were counted or rejected, and the Supreme Court said, no, you can't do that. You, you cannot say this is how we're going to do the election, and then you do the election and say, wait a second, let's change the rules of how we're going to do the election. You, you can't do that. And that's what the Democrats want to do now. And, of course, you know and I know John Roberts will go along with them. Howdy. It is Eric Erickson. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I'm I'm getting people angry with me for, for talking about voting twice. You know, if your intention is to cast two ballots, then, yes, you're committing vote fraud. If your intention is to see if they've tracked you with your absentee ballot and you don't actually want to cast two votes, you just want to see if it's possible so that you know that they're, they're tracking this right, that's not actually illegal. And that was the point that the president was getting at. Make sure the system works. I, but I do have to say something here in, in intellectual, honest terms. I think it is dangerous territory for the Republicans to engage in a wholesale effort to try to undermine the integrity of the voting process, including voting by mail, just as I think it is a really terrible idea of the Democrats to try to undermine the voting process by claiming the Russians are going to try to steal it. I also think it is very interesting and a little hypocritical that the Democrats think the Russians are going to try to steal the election. Let's let everyone vote by mail. I mean, have, have you thought about that one? Let's let everybody vote by mail. The Russians are trying to steal the election. Okay. Uh, Can the Russians not steal an election by mail? Seems like it would be easier to steal an election by mail if you're the Russians than to hack voting machines from Moscow. That that actually seems like it would be a little more difficult to do, particularly when you got 50 states and 50 processes. But also, this is the other thing. This, by the way, is one of the reasons why – I like the Electoral College. Wish it had a better football team, but I do think that the Electoral College uh, serves a great purpose in the United States in that in addition to the diversification of uh, the diversification of states required to win the Electoral College and therefore win the presidency, you can't just have urban states involved. Uh, you also, every four years, the Electoral College has a pattern of swing states. But you never really know which ones really are the swing states. For example, uh, if you look at the Fox News polling right now, Fox News polling says that uh, Minnesota is solidly for Joe Biden. 
If you look at the Emerson College, which is a terrible pollster, uh, but look at Trafalgar, which actually got uh, several of these states right in 2016. Uh, Trafalgar says the race is tied in Minnesota. Is Minnesota a swing state or not? How do you know? Should you make a play in Minnesota or not? What about Michigan? Michigan is supposedly a swing state right now. But some polling actually shows Joe Biden has a decisive lead. In fact, in the polling averages right now, with the exception of North Carolina, every single swing state in the polling average has Joe Biden ahead. I, I told you guys the other day that if the race were, were that day, I think Trump would win. Um, but the, the even with the polling trends, Joe Biden actually still has pretty good leads in a lot of these states. But which ones do you know? How, how do you know? How do you know? How do you know which one's going to be the swing state? Because, I mean, it's a no-brainer that Donald Trump, if Donald Trump wins California, there's a lot of voter fraud in California because he's not going to win California. If Joe Biden wins Alabama, someone stole the election for Joe Biden in Alabama. You, you kind of know this. If Joe Biden wins Texas, yeah, there's probably, we, we got we to audit that. But Arizona, Arizona actually is in play, which is a bad sign for the GOP, by the way. North Carolina is going to be a swing state. You know what's not going to be a swing state? Georgia's probably not going to be a swing state, even though they'd like you to believe it. But you got to figure out which swing state, which combination gets you to 270 in the Electoral College. Uh, what are their election procedures? What are their voting machines? What do their absentee ballots look like? It's really hard to do at scale, folks. It really is. But neither side cares at this point. Both sides want to undermine the integrity of the process because they think it benefits them. And that's kind of sad. And I think you should be willing to acknowledge it's sad. But too many people have gotten so tribal and so partisan now, they can't acknowledge that both sides are undermining the process. It's not about the integrity of the process. It's It's not about the democracy. It's not about the republic. It's about power for both sides at this point. And that's shameful in my mind uh, that both sides are doing it. But I also think it's really shameful that there's a willful distortion of what the president is saying by the media. The media wants you to believe he's saying something that he's not. You don't need some sort of Trump translator to tell you what he's talking about. He's talking about making sure that they're not committing fraud by making sure that you can't vote twice in these elections. I, I got to say, it is striking to me that uh, the president of the United States says that New York is violent, and Andrew Cuomo's response is, hey, you're, buddy, you're going to need a bodyguard if you visit here. Uh, isn't he confirming then that New York is violent? Probably not the, uh, not, not the greatest, not, not the greatest response. Hey, do you know one of the swing states that's not a swing state? Pop quiz! Which of the swing states is not a swing state? Georgia. Georgia. I'll tell you why. But first, it is Eric Erickson. If you're just tuning in, you have no idea. Who is this voice on the radio? Well, it's it's me. It's Eric Erickson. Uh, normally live from Macon. I'm actually in Atlanta today. Uh, the phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, is 877-97-ERIC. 877-973-7425. Georgia is not a swing state. Do you know how I can prove to you that Georgia is not a swing state? Guess which presidential campaign is spending zero dollars in Georgia right now on advertising for radio, television, or digital based on IP address? Which campaign? Ah, yeah, that would be the Biden campaign. Of all of these supposed swing states, the only one the Biden campaign is not spending money in, Georgia. 
They haven't spent money in Georgia in four weeks. You heard me. Four weeks. They hadn't spent money in Georgia in four weeks. Now, that's not just television ad spending. That's also digital ad spending. When you get on YouTube and see a Biden video or or the word search videos or word searches, that you go on Google and you see an ad for Joe Biden's campaign. If your IP address suggests that you're from Georgia, you're not seeing Joe Biden stuff right now paid for by the Biden campaign. Now, that doesn't mean outside groups aren't spending money. There are some outside groups spending money. But the Biden campaign is not. Do you know Why? Say it with me, people. Y'all can say it with me. Georgia is not a swing state. You don't need the WSB-TV landmark communications poll to let you know that. Georgia's not a swing state. Now, let's let's review, shall we, just a little bit in Georgia. Um, the odds are suburb, some suburban districts in Georgia are going to go to the Democrats. Some suburban districts in Georgia really will see a Democratic uh, shift. Why? Because of the demographic trend lines. Uh, there are some Republicans, I've mentioned this, there are some Republicans who seem to think uh, for reasons that boggle my mind that Georgia actually uh, is going to see the state legislature go to the Democrats. I, I don't believe that's going to happen. I don't think you're going to see Georgia become a Democratic state. I don't think you're going to see the Democrats take over a house of the legislature. The Democrats in Georgia, by the way, they don't particularly think you're going to see a takeover of the uh, state legislature either. In fact, there is concern about Bob Trammell. Now, for those of you who do not know, Bob Trammell, he's actually a nice guy. I've never met him, but by all accounts, all the Republicans in the state legislature say, yeah, he, he's a nice guy, uh, but they want him beat, and he's probably going to be beat. Bob Trammell is the uh, – he, he took over from Stacey Abrams. He is the leader of the Democrats in the State House of Representatives. Bob Trammell is from Luthersville, Georgia. Now, for those of you who don't know where Luthersville, Georgia is, it is on the outskirts of uh, the metro area in Atlanta. It's down Highway 27 from the Noonan area. Uh, south of Noonan, you drive through on Highway 27 to Luthersville. There's actually, you can get to, sometimes my family, when we go to, my in-laws are over in Carrollton, and we drive from Macon to Carrollton. And normally we go up to Highway 16 in Griffin and, uh, on 75, and we cut across that way instead of going through Atlanta. It's, it usually winds up being faster going through Griffin on 16. But occasionally, like, there's a lot of road construction right now between Griffin and Macon and, on 75. And so we'll go back ways, and, and we will go through Luthersville. And it is a small town. Uh, there really isn't a whole lot in Luthersville. You got like a, a package store and a gas station and a post office in Luthersville and the Baptist Church down the street for the package store. <laughs> but there's just there's just not a lot there. It, but it's a place that went overwhelmingly for Donald Trump and for Brian Kemp. And yeah, you, you so Bob Trammell represents Luthersville. He's a lawyer there. And that district, it's District 132. It covers Grantville and, and Hoganville and Lutherville. It's, it covers all the villes. Cruella DeVille is there. Lutherville is there. Hoganville is there. Uh, Mountville is there. I'm just, I'm looking at the map. And, and it covers a little bit of LaGrange. Cuts over into LaGrange. 
Uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. I'm just, I'm looking at the map. I, I am. Uh, Hollowville is not there. What is it with all the villages? Y'all, I'm not kidding. I'm just pulling up this map. There's Hollowville, Lutherville, Grantville, Hoganville, Mountville, um, the, the, the Vils, the, even Cruella DeVille is over there. It's just, wow. Anyway, so distraction, sorry. So Bob Trammell represents this area. Brian Kemp won it. In 2018, Donald Trump won it in 2016, and Bob Trammell's hung on. Now, Bob Trammell, you should understand, and again, every Republican in the state legislature that I have ever talked to likes Bob Trammell. I don't know that Bob Trammell is disliked by anybody in the state legislature, Democrat or Republican. He's a nice guy. Disagree with him on politics. You can disagree with him on all sorts of stuff, but by all accounts, he's a nice guy. But they want him beat because this is a Republican district, and, and it would be a big deal. And he actually is endangered because a lot of outside Republican groups want to take him out because they want to send a message about that district being Republican. And the Democrats are on offense in the suburbs in Atlanta. And because they're on offense in the suburbs in Atlanta and uh, Houston Gaines out in the Athens area, they're trying to pick off his seat. He's probably the one of the most vulnerable Republicans in the state legislature, Houston Gaines. They're trying to get him out of the state legislature. Now, he actually has he's he's done a very good job being a retail politician in his part of the state outside of Athens. He's he is uh he's liked in the community. He does a lot of door-to-door. He he knows people in the community in, in the same way with Bob Trammell. While the Democrats are trying to pick off Houston Gaines and some of these other – Deborah Silcox, they're trying to get uh, – Jan Jones, they're trying to get um, – uh, Sharon, what's her name? Uh, they're, they're trying to get in, in the, the General Assembly in the metro area. Republicans are looking at some of these seats thinking we can get a chance to get them back. Um, Mary Robichaux in the Roswell area, she beat uh, Betty Price. Betty Price was is Tom Price's wife. Tom Price, former congressman, uh, former head of HHS. Betty Price is his wife. She had that seat for two years. She lost it in 2018. She's trying to get it back. The Democrats are spending a lot of money trying to get the 6th Congressional District and the 7th Congressional District uh, and to hold the 6th and flip the 7th. The 7th now leans Democrat, according to the Cook Political Index. But the Republicans are pouring in money and they're trying to organize. And they could get some of these seats back. They could get seats back because, say it with me, people, Georgia is not a swing state. Can we just be honest here? I, and, and at the risk of offending some people, not my intended audience, but I know who listens to this program. There's a lot more than just conservatives who listen to this program. Stacey Abrams is overrated when it comes to building a ground game operation. <gasps> Heresy, you heretic. How dare you say that about our beloved governor of the state of Georgia? How dare you? Stacey Abrams is actually overrated on building a ground game. And, and the data speaks to it, y'all. The data speaks to it. The, the Democrats registered 980,000 people in the run-up to the uh, 2016 election. They were able to get more votes for Stacey Abrams than Hillary Clinton got in the state. But of those 980,000 newly registered voters, less than 100,000 actually showed up to vote. That's not good. You know, in, in finance, I got a story about that Robinhood app we, we may get to. In, in finance, in finance, 
there is the statement that uh, the past is not an indicator of the future. The past is never an indicator of the future when it comes to finance. The lawyers make them tell you that. When you buy stock in a company that's been going gangbusters for years, the lawyers make them say, you're buying the stock, but keep in mind, past performance is no indication of future success. The lawyers wrote that for them. They don't want you to get sued for – they don't want the company to get sued when all of a sudden it craps out. You're like, what? You've gone up every year over year. I mean this is my life. I buy stock in a company that's gone up year over year. The moment I buy a stock, you know that company's going bankrupt. I I have like the Midas bankruptcy touch when it comes to picking stock. I pick a stock, that company – I mean y'all, in fact, I bought some shares at Apple yesterday. You probably want to sell right now because the company's going to go bankrupt in the next year because I just bought stock in it. Nonetheless, I digress. The past is not an indicator of future success in the stock market. But you know where the past is an indicator of future behavior? Voting. Voting. When when you're 50 years old and you've never voted, by the time you're 60, guess what? You'll probably never have voted. When the Democratic activists show up at your house because they've modeled out the neighborhood and you look like you're going to be a voter who votes Democrat and you've never voted before in your life, the odds are you're never going to vote. That's the dirty little secret about the voter registration campaigns. You go out and you try to get new voters. It's really hard to get new voters to actually go vote. They register to vote. They just don't show up. In fact, new voters who have never voted before oftentimes will get absentee ballots and guess what? They don't ever mail them in. They keep them as a souvenir. It's their bookmark and their little trashy novel that they got from Amazon. They can't can't mail their absentee ballot in. How are they going to know about Howard and the Dead Girl's Ghost and what they actually did? You you just – I mean they're reading the trashy novel from Amazon. There's an inside joke there none of you will get, but nonetheless, they got to use their absentee ballot as the bookmark. They, they They can't mail in the ballot now. Who cares whether Joe Biden or Donald Trump was? They got to find out whether Howard actually did the deed with the ghost in the trashy novel. There's one person who's listening to this who gets this joke, and that's okay. It was meant for them. Um, Y'all, a new voter isn't necessarily a new voter. We talk about new voters all the time as, as people who've registered, but unless they've actually gone to the polls and cast them out, they're not a new voter. And Stacey Abrams is really good at getting people to register to vote. She's a master of voter registration drives. Abrams has gotten tons of people to register to vote. But that doesn't actually translate into getting them to go vote. The mythology has been built, but it's a mythology. And the Democrats nationally realize it. The Democrats realize something else as well. Uh, They realize... That if Brian, if if Donald Trump wins re-election, the odds go up that Stacey Abrams could potentially shift the state to the Democrats in 2022. Why? Because Georgia demographically is close, and the Republicans have not accepted yet that demography does not have to be destiny. You know, uh, Black and Hispanic voters don't have to vote Democrat. They could vote Republican. But in order to get them to vote Republican, you've got to persuade them to vote Republican. And and the dirty little secret in politics is that Republicans have actually been very bad at persuading people to vote for them outside of white voters. 
And it's not that black voters are locked into the Democratic Party, but they kind of are because the Republicans haven't made a persuasive case. But Hispanic voters are still up for grabs in this country. And the longer you're a Hispanic voter in the United States of America, guess what? The more likely you are to vote Republican. And the Republicans could build a coalition with Hispanic voters in Georgia and make them Republican. And you know who's tried to build that coalition? The Democrats in Georgia. And do you know that the Democrats in Georgia have been bad, bad at building that coalition with with Hispanic voters? The GOP have an opportunity here. The Democrats haven't figured out how to build that coalition. The Republicans probably could because do you know what you call a Hispanic person in Georgia? Hard worker or small business owner. And those are Republicans. Georgia is not a swing state. It will become a swing state in the next couple of years if the GOP doesn't figure out how to connect with Hispanic voters. But right now, Georgia is not a swing state. And nationally, the Democrats know it. They also know that if Joe Biden wins the presidency, Stacey Abrams is not going to win the governor's mansion in 2022. And in fact, privately, some Democrats in Georgia will tell you that the Abrams camp and the the, the vaunted Abrams team, they're really not lifting a finger to help Biden in Georgia at this point because she's not the vice presidential nominee and it's not really going to be a swing state. And if Donald Trump wins, Stacey Abrams probably benefits from it. Now, some people won't like to hear that, but that's what Democrats are whispering about. They're they're a little bit they're they're a little bit concerned about the trajectory of the race. And you know what? They shouldn't be concerned about the trajectory of the race. Let's just be honest. Uh, Democrats in Georgia should not be concerned about the trajectory of the Biden-Trump race. Why? Because Biden was never going to win it in Georgia in the first place. This has all been chatter. Every single election since I've really been active on on radio, the 2012 election, 2014, the 2016, the 2018, there's always, every single year now, there's been a story, is this year, is this year? Georgia's going to flip this year. Georgia's going to flip. We had a series of them earlier this year. Georgia's going to flip. This is the year. This is the year. Oh, my goodness, Georgia's going to go blue. Except it's not. And the tell is Joe Biden has spent zero dollars in Georgia for four straight weeks. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The full number, if you'd like to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Listing in, from WGAU in Athens, Georgia, that would be Rooster calling in. Welcome. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. I'm enjoying your show today, and I was kind of uh, thinking about it. I keep hearing about uh, voter suppression and voter ID. How hard is it to get a state ID that's got a picture, and why would that have an effect on the voters? Uh, You know, there's actually no evidence. Uh, The Democrats love to say it, but there actually is zero evidence that a voter ID suppresses the vote. In fact, the the evidence is in the last four years in a row, uh, black voter participation has increased at a higher rate than white voter participation in Georgia. Uh, the Democrats don't like to talk about that because they, they want the mythology of voter suppression. Uh, but in Georgia, the, no, the percentage of black voters has gone up at a higher rate than the percentage of white voters, even taking into account population shifts in the state. Which means that requiring a photo ID hasn't actually uh, hurt anybody. In fact, every poll I've ever seen actually shows that black voters and white voters at a at a pretty substantial rate support requiring photographic identification to vote. It kind of makes sense. That's one reason, by the way, the left is so desperate for 
um, is so desperate for mail-in balloting, they want to get around photo ID requirements. And I personally think you should require people to have to have uh, photographic evidence, uh, send in a picture of their driver's license or their other photo ID if they're going to vote or at least put down their driver's license number, their voter ID number. Because, you know, there is a way to do that is you put in uh, – everybody gets a, a driver's license number or, or if they don't have a driver's license, they get a state uh, government-issued ID. Put that number down. Require them to put that number down and make it match because you'd be amazed at the at, – uh, it's actually not readily available information in most cases. It's not on the voter registration files. you got to go in and you can make it secure over time. And do that. There, there should be more steps, y'all. I'm an advocate of, of I, well, I, I shouldn't say I'm an advocate of it. I, I just I believe in the integrity of the absentee voter process. I actually am vehemently opposed to absentee and early voting. I, I think it's bad. I think that uh, our republic should require the communal act of once every two years, everyone showing up together and being miserable together, standing in line, smelling each other's body odor as we stand in the rain, getting wet, waiting to go in and cast our ballot on those stupid machines. We should all have to do it together unless you're in the military overseas and you can't get back to vote or you're stuck in a hospital and you can't. All of us should have to do it. And if you can't that day, you, you scheduled a meeting that day. Well, guess what? Your vote doesn't count. should be a holiday, though. I, I'm actually in favor of it being a holiday. Every two years, we have a holiday. We all show up together. We stand in line. We sweat together. We get rained on together and we go cast our ballot and we show an ID to do it. I do think Republicans need to come up with a way to ensure better integrity in mail-in balloting, and I, I think there are ways to do that, whether it's it requiring people not just put their signature on. You know, one of the problems with the signature is that it could deviate substantially from your voter registration card. If you, if you signed your voter registration card when you were 18 years old and you're casting your ballot when you're 45 years old, your signature is probably different. Mine is. My signature's different now from when I was a when, when I uh, signed my voter registration card, and we should consider things like that. But the idea of widespread rampant voter fraud or voter suppression not not actually I don't think it's real. But w- what do the Democrats call voter suppression? Uh, I call it weeding out stupid people, frankly. And we'll explain what voter suppression. With the Democrats say the vote is being suppressed. Let me explain to you what they're actually talking about when we come back. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. John Ossoff uh, raised $4.7 million in August uh, to beat David Perdue. It's not going to be enough. Uh, Purdue, we, we haven't seen his fundraising totals yet. The uh, outside groups have spent $13 million so far against Ossoff, uh, defining him. And Ossoff isn't able to get outside the metro Atlanta area. Uh, he's not able to gain attraction of voters out there. And the Democrats actually have a problem. So Lucy McBath, the congresswoman of the 6th Congressional District, that's the uh, suburban Cobb County, Roswell, Sandy Springs area in uh, North Atlanta, has come out for Raphael Warnock. The Democrats are trying to consolidate around Warnock. That's a problem, too, because they can't get Lieberman out of the race. And Matt Lieberman keeps raising a lot of money. And that is, um, well, 
problematic because uh, y'all listen you got to be careful how you say this because you know how people want to pounce these days on everything you say and it's not meant to be controversial uh but having two white jewish guys running in georgia in the democratic uh for the democratic nomination uh really doesn't say to black voters that you know what uh this party is for me that is just the reality uh, it is why the Democrats want everyone to rally around Raphael Warnock because they don't want two guys who, who in a lot of voters' minds, w- would seem similar. Having a, a black candidate and a white candidate uh, running for the Democrats would help them. Warnock right now is doing better than Lieberman in the polls, but Lieberman has a lot of money. And he's got a lot of support in the metro Atlanta area. My suspicion is that Lieberman's voters will bail on him. Uh, in the metro Atlanta area uh, because they, they're they hungry for a win. I don't think it's going to work. Again, I don't think Georgia's a swing state. Uh, I, I just, I don't, I don't think it is. And I, um, I, I think the Democrats are wasting their money, but that's okay. I mean, if they want to run some ads like on these radio stations that I'm on and, and help us out, I'm, I'm totally happy to take their money. <laughs> I just, I don't think it'll work for them. Oh, you know, I was going to talk about this topic anyway, so I might as well go to the phones. The phone number here, if you want to be a part of the program, is 877-973-7425. Josh is calling from Macon. Josh, how are you? I'm great, Eric. How are you? Good. What's going on? Well, I was um, I was listening to your show, huge fan, and uh, I heard you mention the Robin Hood app. I absolutely love it so far, and I wanted to get your thoughts. Uh, you know, okay. I'm actually uh, as you're talking, I look at my phone and get a push alert from Robinhood. I, I got it. Um, so you know, there's actually a story today, Josh, in the Wall Street Journal. I was going to talk about Robinhood faces an SEC probe for not disclosing deals with high speed traders. They could be fined uh, ten million dollars uh, in a settlement. So essentially, what they've been doing is they they cut a deal with high speed traders. Day essentially the the rise of day traders back in their app, and they haven't disclosed it, and that's problematic for them. Uh, They collect payments from trading firms like Citadel Securities and Verdu Financials for executing customer orders. You can throw your money in. You don't get charged a lot of commissions, if any, for trading. In fact, if anybody wants to check out the app, I'm going to abuse my platform here. Josh, I'm going to let you go here and and I'm going to talk, not have to keep you on hold there. Uh, Thanks for the call on this. So if you want to check out the Robinhood app, if you text DATA, to 33777. I'll send you back a link. Now, full disclosure here, if you decide you want to use the Robinhood app, they give you a free share of stock. And if you use the link I send you, data to 33777, they're going to give me a free share of stock too. It's a great way to support me if you use that link. Uh, but the, Robinhood induces you into the app. They give you a share of stock. Uh, I have gotten, let's see, I, I've gotten uh, General Electric stock and Sirius XM stock from, from Robinhood. Um, if you want to just text the word data to 33777, by the way, uh, the gun school I've been telling you about, uh, Archon ready, they're going to do another gun school in the Atlanta area in January. They're bringing in their, their big trainers. It's one of the best gun groups in the country for, uh, teaching you gun skills. And they're coming in January. There's a link in there. If you text data to 33777, you'll get the Robinhood link, but you'll also get the registration link for the Arkan Ready School. If you want some gun training, uh, you should text that and just go check them out. They're a great group. Uh, but anyway, so Robinhood. 
there's a problem with Robin. So I, I'm trying to get my buddy Chris Burns. He's been really tied up in the last couple of weeks, but he he is not a Robin Hood fan. He's my financial advisor. His dynamic money um, is is my financial advisor. They they've worked with us for uh, probably two years now, and he's not a fan of Robin Hood because of the way um, it, it it handles your money. But also, one of the things about the Robinhood app, though, let, me, let me step back for a minute because Josh and I know what Robinhood is, and a lot of you may not. You know, Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley, TD Ameritrade, uh, Fidelity Investments, you can go online, Charles Schwab, you go online and you buy stock. You pay a commission and you buy stock, you hold that money. You buy reasonable companies that you think are going to grow over time. Robinhood is for millennials and Gen Z. It's an app on your phone where you can buy stock and you don't pay a commission. Now, you, you ultimately, it's it's baked in. They, they make money from you over time. Um, that There are small fees that accumulate and stuff, but you get an account. Let's say you put $500 in your Robinhood account. Robinhood sends you a really good-looking debit card. You can use it like a bank. You can withdraw money from an ATM that you put in the Robinhood account, but it's really there to induce you to buy stocks. And what Robinhood does is it has a podcast on Spotify. And if you listen, if you like Spotify, for example, has a uh, daily mix of audio for you, and it gives you little excerpts from NPR of what the news of the day is. It plays music and things you're going to want to listen to. And every once in a while, it'll insert what they call uh, a Robin Hood snack. And a Robin Hood snack is a maybe two-minute segment on a stock that's really hot, and it induces you to go buy it or to sell it. And there are people who are using the Robinhood app, celebrities who are using it, making money by getting online and telling you, hey, I just bought X stock, and everybody else goes and rushes and buys it. And once they've driven up the price, the celebrity sells and makes money. And it induces you to engage in in buying and selling stocks. It does not, and this is the big key here, this this is why my buddy Chris Burns has, has problems with it. Robinhood does not induce you to invest. Robinhood's app, or the Robinhood app, induces you to trade. And if you're trading, you're essentially, it's, it's another way of saying you're gambling. You're taking a risk that this stock is going to go up and then I'm going to cash out. Or what a lot of people are doing in Robinhood is there are a lot of uh, marijuana stocks out there. Marijuana stocks are doing very badly. Now, I need to disclose to you guys something. I, a while back, decided I was going to go out because they're all like 10 cents a piece, and I bought a ton of stock in marijuana companies. Nope, I, I'm, I have no interest in it except for the fact that I am going to profit off you people's sin because legalization is coming. You're not going to stop it. It's coming, and when it is, some of those stocks are going to go gangbusters, and right now you can get them for like 10 cents on the dollar, and so I'm going to profit off of all you sinners. But right now they're doing terrible, and so a lot of, a lot of, what, a, what a lot of day traders will do on the Robinhood app is they'll go see which ones are rising because they know that they're going to crash, and so they'll they'll do um, they'll take they'll sell short, and they'll make money that way. You can buy Bitcoin on Robinhood, you can buy the index funds, but Robinhood is designed 
to incentivize your regular trading. Robinhood does not like people like me who buy a stock and hold it. Every day they send me push alerts that, oh, this stock has gone up, this stock has gone down, this stock looks like it may be going down, the stock's earnings are coming out, people think it's not going to meet the earnings. They want you to trade. And for people who want to throw some money at the stock market and, and treat it like a craps table or blackjack, go for it. Text the word DATA to 33777. You can see it. They'll If you start an account with Robinhood, they're going to give you a share of stock. When I started my account with Robinhood, they gave me a share of General Electric. And then someone followed that link that I send out when you text DATA to 33777. And because they started an account, they, they, they give you three stocks to choose from. You, it's like a scratch-off lottery game. Again, it's incentivizing trading, gambling, treating it like a lottery. They gave me a, a share of Sirius XM because somebody else followed my link. But it's it's – Encouraging Gen Z and and millennials to engage not in building savings or wealth, but to engage in risky behavior. And I increasingly, the more I've paid attention to Robin Hood, I've become a little more skeptical of it. I, look, I, I think it's great that there is an app out there right now where you can actually go – you can use it to buy stock, and you can leave the stock. You can transfer it to – like I've got a TD Ameritrade account, and I've had it for years. Don't have a lot of stock in there. I've got Facebook. i got some Apple there as well. Uh, I, I've got my buddy – so i got a buddy, John Lindvig, who is just a genius when it comes to that, uh, buying stocks and, and knowing when to hold, knowing when to sell, knowing how to build wealth with it. And I, I rely on it because I, I don't keep up with it enough. Robinhood makes you feel smart because it sends you push alerts and gives you the, oh, their earnings are coming out. Oh, their earnings came out. Oh, they're, they're going down. Oh, they're going up. Oh, analysts say this about the stock. Oh, there's this gossip about the stock. Oh, listen to our podcast and get some inside information. But all of the information's designed not to help you build wealth. The information's designed to help you spend money. And there's a difference. And, you know, by the way, this is a perfect time. I've, I've done bad with my, my sponsorships today. This is a perfect time for me to talk about dynamic money before I go to break here. Uh, Chris Burns is, uh, in fact, he's filling in for me, I think, on Monday for Labor Day. Uh, he is the CEO of Dynamic Money. They are a financial planning firm. And one of the things when Christy and I started using them uh, a couple of years ago was about what are your strategies to build long-term wealth, not short-term wealth, but long-term wealth. On the idea that your income is probably going to grow over time, how do you take that growth in income and maximize it, compound the interest, put it in, in investments that grow with you over time so that when you hit retirement age, you got more money than you expected to have? How do you plan to set aside money to build your kid's college fund? How do you plan to set aside money to build a retirement fund? How do you set aside money to build an emergency fund? That's what they do. They're specialists at it. They are a fee-only firm, and most fee-only firms are for high net worth individuals. Uh, they pay a lot of money, and they can call any time. And what uh, the genius of what Dynamic Money has done is that they're a fee-only firm, and they're designed for middle-class families to be able to pay a smaller fee than what the high net worth people would pay and get the same great advice. And they're not going to sell you anything on commission. They're not going to sell you a product. They're not going to try to get you invest with them. They don't do any of that. They don't sell you any products. They sell zero products. But if you need to refinance, they can tell you who to go to. If you need new insurance, they can tell you who to go to. They don't get kickbacks or, or commissions from those people either. Their entire idea 
and their business model is that you should have someone you can call on and get real truth about financial planning and real truth about where to go in the market and real truth about stabilizing your income and investments and building a reserve fund. And because they sell you nothing, all they sell you is is good advice. I can't recommend them enough. Uh, They've really helped my wife and me build a retirement fund and an emergency fund and get out of debts. It is dynamicmoney.com is their website, dynamicmoney.com. If you go to them, tell them I sent them, tell, tell them I sent you. You're not going to get commission sales. You're not going to get annuities. You're not going to get life insurance. You're not going to get any of that sort of stuff. You're going to get good financial advice. Also, Chris did mention to me, if you're a business and you need somebody to come in and talk to your employees and just give them straight advice on uh, 401ks, things like that, you're not getting going to get the sales pitch from them on investing in a 401k because they don't do that. They just give you sound financial advice. Dynamic Money's happy to do that as well. They can meet you by Zoom. They can meet you by Skype. They can meet you anywhere in the country, wherever you're listening. You too can use Dynamic Money. Go to dynamicmoney.com. And now a word for our sponsor, True Precision. I got to get, you know, so I'm in Atlanta. I usually have my my laptop is covered in sticky notes. Hey, remember, you got to talk about this, that, and the other. Uh, I I love all my sponsors, but sometimes I'm I'm terrible about remembering to actually do the ad read. But I am really good about going and taking my True Precision gun to the to the gun range. Y'all, in all honesty, true-precision.com, it's their website, and they're great. Uh, they're good people, and they make incredible, incredible slides and barrels and triggers for your guns. Uh, SIG, M&P, uh, Glock, I've got a Glock 43X, and I worked with them from the ground up building out this Glock 43X, and it's just, it, it's such a fun gun to shoot. It is. I needed a concealed carry gun. I got to go get my concealed carry permit. I, I let it lapse like beyond the time where I got to go through the fingerprint process and stuff all over again anyway. Uh, but um, it's it's a great gun and I love it. It's beautiful. It is a, a camo slide. You can see it on Instagram. You should follow me on Instagram anyway at E.W. Erickson. But it's, it's a great gun and they upgraded it for me. Now, here's the thing. If you go to true-precision.com, and you buy a slide or a barrel from them, you can upgrade your trigger with them. And at checkout, you put in Eric, E-R-I-C-K, you'll get 10% off. So it's worth going to true-precision.com. Uh, and there, listen, we we had a couple of, of other folks approach us about doing sales that were in the same market. We're like, nope, we got them. And they were like, well, you know, we, we can pay you more. And I was like, yeah, I'm actually a customer of theirs and I really like them. So I'm I'm willing to not go with these other true precision. They really are good people, and they really do a great job. Y'all don't have to believe me. I mean, just go check out their website. You can see the stuff for yourselves. True-precision.com. I, I thank them for their sponsorship, but I really thank them for that 43x. It's just it, it's fantastic. Now, uh, believe it or not, I want to talk about tax shelters, and I don't have time in this segment to talk about tax shelters. Uh, but I do want to talk. I'm going to make it interesting for you. I know this is a topic. It puts you. When I was in law school, you had to take income tax. And I took income tax and I loved my income tax professor. She's one of my favorite professors in law school and tax shelters can put you to sleep. I'll make it entertaining for you, I promise. Before we get there though, I want to talk about Benadryl. Speaking of sleepy, don't you like the tie-in segment there? Benadryl, have y'all heard about this? We've gone from the Tide Pod challenge to the Benadryl challenge. It's a TikTok thing. 
where teenagers are trying to convince other teenagers to overdose on Benadryl, which if you overdose on Benadryl, it can cause hallucinations. But here's the thing. You got to take a lot of Benadryl. So here's something I never knew until a few years ago. In this country, what do you know the standard dose of Benadryl for an adult, a tablet? It's 25 milligrams of Benadryl. You can take double that. You can actually take up to 100 milligrams of Benadryl and be okay. But you can take 50 milligrams of Benadryl and, and you'll be fine if you're an adult. Um, it, Benadryl, typically, it's, it's not bad. But when you're taking 1,000 milligrams of Benadryl at a time, you're going to hallucinate and then you're going to have a seizure and then you're going to die. And kids on TikTok are trying to induce other kids on TikTok. Y'all, right there is everything wrong with this. Did you not hear what I just said? Kids on TikTok. Eh, bad. Don't do it. Don't let your kids on TikTok. It's bad. Uh, you got the Chinese now letting young Gen Zers get other Gen Zers to dope themselves up on Benadryl and die. They're wiping out the American population by getting rid of idiots on TikTok and spreading the virus. That's what they're doing. I... I'm pro-life, so I really shouldn't affirm the genius of getting rid of idiots on TikTok. But still, uh, nonetheless, you've you've got you got high schoolers overdosing on Benadryl to try to hallucinate. The problem is you don't know what the dosage is that's going to get you to the hallucination, and it's right on the borderline of hallucination and death. Now, I, and again, I say this: I didn't realize that you could actually take 100 milligrams of, of Benadryl uh, if you're an adult, and typically you're fine. Uh, I actually did that on a flight one time. I, I didn't want to take Ambien. Ambien doesn't really work on me. It's very weird. It does not work on me. Uh, it works on my wife. doesn't work on me. Uh, but Benadryl will knock me out. Now, when I was a kid, I think everybody has the story. When I was a kid, Benadryl used to amp me up like I was on speed. My mother, we we lived in Dubai. We would go back. We're trying to adjust to the time change, about a, a seven-hour time difference, seven, eight hours. And she would give me Benadryl, hoping to knock me out, put me to sleep, and help me readjust time. No, no, no. I would stay up all night eating candy bars and watching The Return of the Jedi over and over and over and over. Benadryl kept me up. Nowadays, I can look at a box of Benadryl and fall asleep. I have hit middle age. It is insanity to me. I can take one tiny Benadryl, and that stuff takes me at, like, I got to take it at when I get off the air. If I, if I really need to sleep, my last show ends at 6 p.m., and if I don't have the Benadryl in me by 8 o'clock, I'll wake up the next morning and and, and Jim's got to call me and say, are you awake? And I'll like, <laughs> it is a product of middle age. It, it, it's the craziest thing. Like my kid right now is through the process of where Benadryl used to make her sleepy and now it amps her up. And I'm like, please don't take it. You don't shut up after you take it. And, and I'd like some peace and quiet. But I don't want her to get on TikTok and see these idiots who are overdosing on Benadryl. TikTok is bad. Benadryl is good. But Benadryl in high doses is really bad. When we come back, I'm not going to put you to sleep talking tax shelters. I promise. You got to hear the story, though. This is a wild story. Talk about crony capitalism and the American tax code. And it's happening right here in Georgia. That's right. Tax shelters in Georgia. When we come back. Exciting radio, I promise. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson. The phone number is 877-973-7425. I promise I'm not going to bore you. But we're going to talk about tax shelters. <laughs> I promise. I promise. I, I'm glad to see this. This actually, I saw the story in, in the AJC. Uh, and, and, but, man, this is a thing in Georgia. 
so let, let me let me explain to you. America's favorite tax shelter is the conservation easement. I started doing these when I was a lawyer. Um, essentially what a conservation easement is, is you – let's say you have a piece of land and it's worth a million dollars. And it's it's just vacant, barren land. It, it's got trees on it. It's hunting land. And it's worth a million dollars. But if you were to develop all of that property – you could drive up the worth of the property to $5 million. So what you do is you put a conservation easement on it to prohibit development of the land. And you get $4 million from the federal government in terms of tax offsets so that you get this big tax deduction. So if you got a really big bill, you, you take this deduction. You can use it if now they may have changed the law since I practiced law doing this, but you can spread that out over some time. Now what investors do is investors will go in and buy a lot of land together. They'll use it as hunting land. They'll turn it into um, uh, like we got a big big one near us. Um, it's kind of funny. I, I I won't say the name of the club, but there's a hunting club near us, and they own like five thousand acres. And the sign for this hunting club, if you're not paying attention, to it's supposed to be a deer with antlers. But if you just kind of glance at it, it looks like the female reproductive organ chart that you see in a, a eighth grade biology book. I mean, it really does. And and my wife pointed that out to me. So what is what 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 why is the oh it's supposed to be a deer. <laughs> But, you know, you can buy up massive tracts of land. You don't develop them. Maybe you put a cabin, you put a, you put a trailer on, you, you, you have dig a well, but you leave the rest of it undeveloped and you get a big tax deduction and you can spread it out over time to offset your taxes. And it becomes a great way for people to, to get out of money, uh, to get out of their tax bills. Well, what happens, and this is happening in South Georgia. Let, let me read you this from, from the AJC. Uh, Clay County. Clay County is way down in southwest Georgia. Uh, all you see, this is why I can't be on the radio down there. Albany, Albany. My wife picks on me that I I can't say uh, I can't say Albany, Georgia, because the people in Albany, Georgia, those of you who aren't from there, they don't say Albany. They say Albany. I I can't even do it, and I become self conscious about doing it. But you, you get you get where I'm going with this. Uh, Clay County is way south of Albany, and I'm going to say Albany, and my apologies to those of you because I would like to be on the radio station down there, and it looks like it may be coming soon. Uh, but nonetheless, it is way down in South Georgia. Now, I'm trying to see what is the county seat in Clay County. I should know this. Uh, Fort Gaines. That's it. Uh, so let me let me give you the the description of this. Uh, so Fort Gaines, Georgia. It is down there on the south end of the Walter F. George Reservoir. <gasps> Wait a second. This is problematic. Can we still call it the Walter F. George Reservoir? Because you know Mercer University ditched calling itself the Walter F. George School of Law. Now they say they did. They changed the sign. Walter F. George School of Law is Mercer University's law school. But now they just say the Mercy University School of Law because, uh, you know, woke culture, woke culture came for it. Uh, but nonetheless, you've got the Walter F. George Reservoir. It is there on the Alabama line, and Clay County is way down there on the Alabama line, south of Eufaula, Alabama. 
uh, right there on on the Flint or the Chattahoochee River, and it is a poor rural part of the state. There are no traffic lights or high schools in Clay County. It is sparsely populated. There aren't any hospitals. The county's only doctor has to send sick patients more than an hour away in Alabama to visit the emergency room. But in Clay County, with a population of 3,000 people, uh, developers got together to see an investment opportunity. A 227-acre, 800-unit senior living facility. That's what they were going to build down there. There are 3,000 people total in Clay County, Georgia. And they wanted to build a senior living facility that would house 800 senior citizens in the middle of nowhere with no hospital within an hour's drive on 227 acres. Except they didn't really. That's where where this tax shelter problem comes in. That's what Congress is now investigating. They're investigating this deal in Clay County. Why? Because so what you do is is let's review the tax shelter. You got to land and it's worth a million dollars. But if you developed the land, it would be worth $5 million. And so you put a conservation easement on it and you get uh, $5 million versus the current value of the land, $1 million equals $4 million. You get a $4 million tax deduction. So what people have been doing is they go do all the, they spend $100,000 developing a master plan for a giant development. They're going to put in an 800 cottage, 800 single occupancy uh, facility for senior citizens in Clay County on this 227 uh, acre tract of land. And it is going to drive up the cost of the land. If they built that massive facility down there, it would mean that the value of that land went from $1 million to $10 million. And they get a real estate appraiser to come out who's helped them with the deal. And they're, oh, yeah, I, I think, yes, if we built this and and, and you did the, the shiplap, the Joanna Gaines shiplap in the, in the building, and you put in the brick fireplaces, and, and you run so, some access to Yeah, I think I could get you $10 million. And so you get the real estate appraiser to come down and say, yep, if they built what they claim they're going to build, $10 million. No, no one's ever going to build it. No one has a desire to build it. No one wants to build it. But they come up with the elaborate scheme. They pay a couple hundred thousand dollars. They get blueprints. They get plat work. They get the the building design. They hire an architect. And then they get a $9 million tax deduction. It's actually a great scheme, except the problem is that it's beginning to be abused. The IRS estimated between 2010 and 2017, $27 billion in tax benefits went to investors, including doctors, business owners, athletes, and celebrities, Many of them uh, who don't even live in Georgia. Georgia has become the hotbed for the conservation easement. And none of these people live in Georgia, but they're buying large tracts of land and they're putting a conservation easement on it. Now, here's the other problem. There's a side problem to this. At some point, your county has explosive growth. But guess what? All of the available land to sustain the growth is stuck in conservation easements by people who don't live in Georgia. But they bought the land, put it in a conservation easement to get a tax deduction. They don't care. They don't care about conservation. They just wanted the taxable benefit. And so it's starting to hurt counties as well. Uh, so, some of them are uh, use golf courses 
as conservation land. See, if you've got your conservation – see, this is one of the, the, the loopholes. You've got a golf course, friends. It's a beautiful golf course. There's no development around it. The rules of the conservation easements in some cases are you just have to keep the land as it is. So you can't add to it, but you can keep the land as is. Well, a golf course isn't technically developed land. There's no structures on it, no infrastructure. So you put your golf course under conservation easement, and you can keep the grass mode. You can't change it. You can't change the holes. You can't do anything with it. But your golf course is now conservation easement. You make a lot of money in your tax deductions. This is becoming a problem around the country, and it's really a problem in Georgia because Georgia and the southeast in general has a lot of available farmland as farmers get out of local farming. And people are buying up the land. And then the problem becomes in the future, when the land becomes developable, it can't be developed because you're in a conservation easement and it's stuck. And so Congress is having to look into this, and the Georgia legislature looks like they want to look into it as well. Because one of the things that we're we're learning in Georgia is Georgia has a ton of tax breaks in the code. Uh, and those tax breaks are actually costing the state money, like the Hollywood film tax credit. I realize it's a sacred cow for some people, but Georgia doesn't have a capped limit, or at least it has it. I think they're still considering capping it. But right now, Georgia doesn't have a cap in the limit for uh, the for the um, for, for for the Hollywood film tax credit. So you make a movie in Georgia, and you spend uh, five hundred million dollars in Georgia. You're going to get a massive tax credit on the amount of money that you filmed in Georgia. You're going to get a tax offset. And then the Hollywood company doesn't actually have a lot of business in Georgia, so it doesn't have an income tax. So that $500 million credit, it's going to sell it to a company that actually is headquartered in Georgia and needs to offset its taxes. And it's going to sell that, that tax credit for, uh, let's say, a, a penny on the dollar. You're going to get a massive amount of, of tax credit. And now there's been lots of audits that have come out, and guess what? It turns out that a lot of the film tax credits are being given to Hollywood film studios for work that wasn't even done in Georgia. So they're selling Georgia businesses the film tax credit for work that wasn't actually done in Georgia because no one audited the movies. One of the things that they are going to do, the state legislature of Georgia is intending to do now, is to force audits of the film tax credit to make sure that the work was actually done in Georgia. Uh, I don't understand why Georgia would want to subsidize work done not in Georgia, but that's what we've been doing. And a a state economic development audit task force has revealed that that's what we're doing. So we got to make changes there. I think we should also probably cap it. We're the only state in the nation that doesn't cap the film tax credit. And even folks, Hollywood producers and the like, are willing to say, yeah, go on and tax it. Keep it high, but tax it. It's creating a lot of jobs in Georgia. You know, the theory for it, the theory for a lot of these credits and and stuff is that you actually generate more revenue for the state by bringing people in, putting them to work. Uh, Those people then have income. They have jobs. They go out. They spend money. They contribute to the economy. If the film studio wasn't doing that here, those jobs wouldn't exist. Those jobs wouldn't exist, so the income wouldn't exist. The income wouldn't exist, so the tax revenue from the people wouldn't exist. And it makes sense, actually. Economically, there's a way to do it. There is a way to incentivize it so everybody wins. But we've just kind of gone overboard. And... Um, we probably need to rethink this, folks. I, I'm actually in favor of keeping the tax credit for film industry in Georgia, but I'm also in favor of limiting it. And most of the people I've talked to uh, connected to the film industry are okay with that. 
Most of the legislature is okay with that. One person who was never okay with it was Nathan Deal. Um, so I'm I'm just I we we got to figure something out. I hope I didn't bore you with the tax credit. I'm actually fascinated by the issue because I'm fascinated with how rich people hide their money. That that's my thing. I I, I one day I want to be a rich person. This is why I use Chris Burns and dynamic money because one day I want to I want to be able to hide my money when I become rich. I got to become a rich person first. But once I do, I want to be able to hide my money from the IRS so they can't get it. Then the question is, what about your kids? Because you know, I've actually got this real concern with with, with my kids. If I I was actually had dinner with a couple last night. Uh, the the guy is an engineer partner in his firm, making good money. And he says, you know, I, I, I wasn't making good money until just a few years ago. And, and now I'm suddenly in a position where I'm making good money. And he says, and I, in hindsight, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm glad that I wasn't making good money when I was in my 30s and early 40s because I would have misspent it. Uh, it would have ruined me. And I, there, there's a lot of wisdom in that statement. People who get money early in life tend to be ruined later in life. And I worry about uh, if I get successful. And I hope to be successful. I hope that the show one day is a nationally syndicated show, that I, I have access. I don't need to own a private jet, but I sure want to fly on one because I'm tired of getting yelled at in the airport by people who walk in and see me peeing. And, and this has actually happened, people. I'm not making this up. I, I would very much like to, to not have to fly on Delta as much as I love Delta. I want the beach house, and I want the house on Lake Burton. I really do. I want to be able to go fly fishing on the weekend at my own cabin up in the mountains. But nonetheless— I worry about it. If if I acquire wealth, what happens to my kids? You got to ground them in in scripture, and I, I worry I'm doing a terrible job on that front right now. Uh, but you see people who they acquire wealth early, and it just wrecks them. Think of the number of child actors who their lives are just destroyed because of early fame. Their family's not set up to handle it. You see kids whose whose parents get in on the fame train. And it wrecks their lives as well. Uh, you see people that they move into reality TV and stuff. I just I feel so bad for these people. Money is a, probably the most powerful drug. But I also find it interesting that people carve up loopholes in the tax code to benefit themselves. And they use members of Congress to do it. And it's one of my philosophical objections as a conservative to, to what we're currently doing with the tax code where people with a lot of money can use the tax code to ensure that they never have to worry about the young gun with a great idea coming along and picking them off. They protect themselves through the tax code. Calvin Coolidge is my favorite president. One of the great wisdom things that Calvin Coolidge said was that the, the job of government is to keep the, keep the playing field fair. And I think he's right in that. The job of the government is to make it fair so that the small guy can become the big guy, so that David can slay Goliath. Uh, these days, Goliath can hire an army of lawyers and use the tax code and federal regulatory structure to throw David in jail. We should be able to allow David to pick off Goliath. And when you have these tax shelter situations in South Georgia, you're depriving people of developable land. You're giving tax shelters to people through essentially lying about what the what it's worth. And I, I think you're you're protecting wealth that shouldn't be protected. I, I I'm I'm all in favor of protecting wealth, but wealth gainfully lawfully acquired and rigging the tax shelter and the like, I don't think is that. And we gotta rethink those things. Particularly I think conservatives have a case to be made that the left hasn't done a good job ensuring fairness in the tax code. And uh, I think that conservatives can make that case and we should. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. Man, I so I, I made a reservation for a restaurant uh, in Atlanta yesterday. 
and uh, they, they've closed up the restaurant today. Uh, my, my assistant texted me. She said that they canceled your lunch reservation. What's going on? I, I had no idea. And it looks like they, they closed the re- I have no idea. That's just, that's, they were on social. I have no idea. This is frustrating to me. We'll see. I don't know. But I found somewhere else to go. You know, that that's, I, I worry about if Congress, so first of all, I don't know if you've seen the headline. It should bother all of you that our we now have more debt in this country than the gross domestic product. Our, our the debt is greater than the GDP. This hasn't happened since World War II. And the Republicans have added as much in four years to the national debt as Obama did in eight. And Obama in eight years added more to the national debt than all the other presidents combined. Let me say that again so it registers with you. Donald Trump, in four years, has added as much to the national debt as Obama did in eight years. And Obama, in eight years, added more to the national debt than all the other presidents, including George W. Bush, combined. When George W. Bush left office, the national debt was just over $10 trillion dollars. When Obama left office, we were at $20 trillion. When Donald Trump, at the end of his first term, is either reelected or leaves office, we'll be at $30 trillion. We're at $29 trillion right now. That's really bad. And I realize we've had economic collapse from COVID-19 and all, but it's really bad. And future generations of Americans are going to have to deal with this. It's going to drive up our – it's going to cost us our credit rating, which has already been downgraded. It's going to increase interest rates. It's going to just cause economic chaos for the United States if we don't get this under control. And it's a bipartisan problem. And Republicans never want to raise taxes, and I don't think we need to. I think we can. there actually is a case that we can stimulate economic growth to stimulate tax revenue to grow the GDP to exceed the debt. And one of the reasons that the debt is exceeding GDP right now is because of the economic stagnation caused by the virus. The Democrats, of course, just want to keep spending and then raise taxes. Well, if you raise taxes, you chase capital out of the country. You chase capital out of the country, then you're going to have to raise taxes again to make up for it. Uh, there, there aren't, at this point, easy answers to it. And we got to reform entitlements, and there's no will in this country to reform entitlements. Something's got to give financially in the country. One of the concerns here that I have as well is, is restaurants. A lot of people have been supporting restaurants. I have been eating out where I can, getting to go from restaurants, tipping generously, even though I'm, I'm getting to go and not eating in the restaurant. And uh, I've got the ability to do it, so I am, but a lot of people don't have the ability to do it, and I am increasingly concerned about the financial integrity of restaurants in America, and not just restaurants but small businesses because, you know, the left right now is disparaging small businesses. There have been a series of articles in left-wing publications that actually uh, small businesses are bad because uh, you've got to have so much more retail space for small businesses instead of a big box store. They're, they're uh, carbon inefficient. They're, they're just bad. They don't pay people as much. They don't have better good benefits. The mythology of small business being good, it, it's horrifying to see the left take this train of thought. Small businesses, our economy is run on small business, and they're suffering right now, and Congress can't get its act together. Mark Meadows, uh, the chief of staff to the president, former congressman from North Carolina, is saying he believes we'll get a stimulus deal this week. 
ironically, the Republicans are the ones who wanted the stimulus deal and they, they had a plan to get it. And it's the Democrats who didn't want to do it because they wanted a political issue. It's sad that a political party could want people to suffer to get a political benefit. Democrats always say it's Republicans who want you to suffer. Democrats say it's Republicans who want to shove grandma off the cliff. And yet they're the ones who couldn't extend unemployment benefits or help small businesses and the restaurant industry keep going. But they sure could come back to Washington to bail out the post office, couldn't they? Always willing to bail out their their union friends, just never bailing out the small businesses of America. Points to ponder. And I'll talk to you all tomorrow. How much is $20 million? How about $10 million or even $1 million? If you're like me, that's F-U-N money, as in fun money. It's take 10 trips around the world in a private jet money. It's tell your boss he has bad breath money or home theater that's better than the real theater money. Ohio Lottery jackpot games like Mega Millions, Powerball, and Classic Lotto all give you a chance at real fun money. So play an Ohio Lottery jackpot game today. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Please play responsibly. I'm enrolling in Medicare soon, and it had me a little confused. Then I found MyHealthPolicy.com. With MyHealthPolicy.com, I could go online and compare Medicare Advantage plans from some top-rated national insurers, including $0 monthly premium plans. I can learn about plans in my area and talk with a licensed insurance agent if needed. MyHealthPolicy.com has made doing my research a whole lot easier. My choice. My Medicare. MyHealthPolicy.com. New to Medicare? Start now. Go to MyHealthPolicy.com to learn about some of the top-rated Medicare Advantage plans in your area, including plans for $0 a month in plan premiums, low out-of-pocket costs, and expansive provider networks. If you're thinking about a Medicare Advantage plan, MyHealthPolicy.com is a great place to go to find a plan that meets your needs. Learn more about your options. Even talk with a licensed insurance agent. MyHealthPolicy.com.